0: And masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do
1: Chat show, Greg Carlwood and Company. Rock me like a hurricane, Hireside Chatters, doing the thing from the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood. And in an era of opinion shaping, social media bot brigades, strict story control for mainstream media, counter-narrative canceling and censorship as well as an endless avalanche of personal opinions, having a well-defined and effective process for discerning data and parsing propaganda seems like a very important undertaking and key component to understanding the reality about current events and the machinations of the big machine. Because with everything we deal with, from paid political operatives and media pundits to attention-seeking, chaos-loving 4chan pranksters, there has never been more noise to navigate through in our search for the signal. So today we're talking with a semi-anonymous internet personality focused on these very things who goes by the nickname The Ethical Skeptic. With a background in systems engineering and data analytics, after collecting graduate and undergraduate degrees in engineering, business, finance, and ethics from the number one and number four ranked universities in the U.S. for their respective disciplines, it's safe to say he knows a thing or two about a thing or two. He worked for Naval Intelligence before starting his own strategy and operations company that has become one of the top advisory companies in the world with a cornucopia of corporate clients as well as over a dozen nations on that client list too. Through his website, Substack, and Twitter threads, he applies his mind to a wide range of topics from ancient mysteries and the UAP phenomenon to spirituality and climate data. His popularity exploded during the COVID era as he methodically made his counter-narrative arguments using the best data available, bringing many people to the light through the paranoid darkness, and I salute him for it. So much to cover in so little time, so let's get into it. The professional problem solver, propaganda deconstructor, and proponent of a well-practiced praxis, ethical skeptic, welcome to the higher side.
2: Oh, wow, Greg. Thank you very much for that. Absolutely. Laudatory introduction. I, uh, now I don't have to say a thing about myself. Good. <laughs> yes, yes.
1: And thank you for doing this. I initially sought you out for your analysis of climate data because that does seem like it's going to be the next overhyped justification for controlling our lives. But the further I got into your articles, the more I found that would be interesting to this audience, to say the least. But to break us in, we should frame up your approach a bit. You write a fair amount about real or ethical skepticism versus social or fake skepticism. And broadly speaking, we have a lot of different forces in the world trying to shape our opinions for us on a large number of topics. Give us some universal constants when it comes to how we should approach things and find the signal in the noise, whatever we might be looking at.
2: Well, the primary universal constant is a principle called epoch and forgive me, I don't know the actual Greek pronunciation of poke, but it's an active suspension of disposition. It's not doubt. Most, and I don't want to call them false skeptics, but a lot of skeptics apply doubt. The problem of doubt is that it's a human proclivity, a bias, to apply doubt to those things that threaten us and then forget all about doubt when we hear things that we've you know got an anchoring bias toward or that we automatically accept from our backgrounds, and that's not doubt. That's actually methodical cynicism. So the central linchpin of ethical skepticism and this discipline of thinking that I'm trying to formulate here is a Greek principle, a pyrrhonistic school of skepticism called epoch. It's the active suspension of disposition. In other words, you're not doubting. you know, if your neighbor says they saw a two-foot tall person in a green derby running across their lawn, a leprechaun, you don't immediately doubt them. You just catalog it and put it in a neutral disposition. And it may sit there forever and go nowhere, but there may be something significant that comes from that. That suspension of disposition, the suspended state of judgment exercised by a disciplined mind, objective mind, in preparation to conduct research, and that's another key there, Skepticism means to go look, to palm, to touch. Cynicism means dogged doubt or rejection. Those are distinctly different approaches to epistemology, science, and, of course, personal realization as well.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good start. And you have a post titled The Ethical Skeptics Razor, The Anti-Wisdom of Crowds, where you say... That when you have competing alternatives, all other things being equal, prefer the one for which discussion or research is embargoed. And I really like that. Clearly, that's applicable to COVID and the shots, as well as a lot of climate data that goes against the narrative that's being pushed. It reminds me of Terrence McKenna, who said, The truth can take the pressure, meaning, you know, if we're looking at Unpopular things, paranormal things, just really weird, epic alternatives. Like, let's go because if it's true, let's poke at it and prod at it, and that'll only strengthen the alternative case. So that's the kind of approach I like, and I think we're on the same page there. And it's hard to know if we should go for the fun stuff or the important stuff first. Uh, I say fun. So let's okay. look at let's look at the UAP UFO thing because you do have this background in Navy intelligence and some of the. Heavy hitter researchers consider Navy intelligence to be near the apex of knowledge on the subject. And I grabbed this from what you write about yourself on your website. You say, I served as a top ranked United States Naval officer selected for the top billet available for a junior officer in the United States Navy flag aid to a warfare theater commander. This selection came through a no politics, no nepotism, give me the best we have wartime preparation billeting process. I was subsequently selected for these same reasons from out of Middle East theater operations to serve in the capacity of a black ops, SCI top secret US Naval Intelligence Officer and Department Head in Washington, D.C., honing skills in cryptography, intelligence, and special access programs at the Pentagon and Office of naval intelligence. Wow. Well, obviously there are many black ops slash top secret aspects to what Navy intelligence might do that have nothing to do with UAPs or non-human intelligence. But have you examined the claims of this guy, David Grush, or do you have any thoughts on how much the establishment knows about something non-human interacting with humanity over time?
2: Yes. I took a look at David Grush and I will say here that I'm not a whistleblower in terms of these, you know, special access programs, compartments, top secret SCI exposures that I got in my past. You know, there's a, a little known principle here that really a top secret clearance really means not a lot. <laughs> it doesn't mean a lot, even a specially compartmented information access or clearance, and those are two different things. Access is what you get once you've established a need to know operationally. Clearance is what you get granted by the agencies that administer the clearance process, either, I believe it's Title 12 and Title 50, if I recall. Title 10 and Title 50 is MILSEC, and then Title 50 is National Security NATSEC. You're administered through your clearance, and then you're granted access as a second step. But once you're in there, and I found this when I first got my first top secret clearance, and I was given final access, and my first inclination was go to the top secret safe, whip that sucker open, and read everything that was in the top secret safe. Yeah, it absolutely was tactical, meaningless, insignificant garbage. There was no information in there whatsoever, and you know certainly I wouldn't discuss the nature of what would be in such a classification. But it was yawn. It was just yawn or material. And as I got through SCI and black and special access programs and were granted access to several different compartments through my career, that proved to be the case each time. What is actually classified are the accoutrements and the means of intelligence. What's classified is the fact that you flew to Los Angeles on June 26th. But well, what you did in Los Angeles may not be classified because... To classify something, you have to admit that it exists. So if an extra governmental agency, an NGO, or even a governmental agency wants something to not be known, they don't want to classify it because you've got to classify it. You've got to register it with the controlling authority. You've got to admit that it exists. You've got to protect that information for 50 years, keep it inside safes or black IT structures. You've got to in-brief and out-brief hundreds, maybe thousands of people in and out of that program. You've got to conduct escalation and de-escalation. You've got to execute familial and relational hierarchy associations with that information. In other words, the amount of activity that goes on around classifying something is extraordinary. So if you really want something protected, you don't classify it. You classify (laughs) everything around that subject. It's like a a virtual hole in the middle where everything that's classified serves to act as a smoke screen, which protects that true IP or intellectual property that you're trying to protect. So what you find is that people who are impressed by, you know, SAP accesses and compartments and black SCI and NSA polygraph based clearances, it's not that impressive, actually. That's not where the meat resides. And that's one thing that became clear in the News Nation interview with David Grush, is that people are still continually fascinated with this clearance and access and intelligence expert status of these witnesses or these whistleblowers. It actually doesn't impress me that much, and not that I went that high, I went fairly high, but they don't realize that in those programs, there isn't really any blockbuster information. There's nothing to whistleblow about. So if we have NSA listeners on this call, and indeed we do, I'm not a whistleblower. There's nothing that's going to come out of my testimony here that has anything to do with national security or the technical you know, elements of classification. But I did find David Grush convincing there were some concerns. And to that end, I looked at a program on YouTube that was run by the Behavior Panel. Greg Hartley, Scott Rouse, Chase Hughes, and Mark Bowden, that made a fairly competent critique of David Grush's testimony on the News Nation interview. And they made a couple observations, which passed doubt. But the problem is the observations they made were canned. They could be applied to any interview. And they were somewhat tactical. Maybe, maybe the inference was extrapolated a little too far. But he, David was is well-rehearsed. He is a little bit eccentric. He has large mouth movements, exaggerated expressions, much like a child who's growing in his ability to communicate in his first engaging with adults. They'll tend to be a little more demonstrative. He equivocated between clearance and access, need to know, read into disclosure, disposition, in-brief, out-brief, Title 10 versus Title 50 classifications, and implied that he could go anywhere, speak to anyone, or look at anything. That's not actually true, and equivocating between all those statuses is probably not wise, but he wasn't misrepresenting there necessarily either. But here's the part that I found most credible. He made two complaints. Number one, he made the complaint that the UAP task force program of which he was part was not given access to a broad crash and retrieval program. Now, I don't know whether or not that crash and retrieval program indeed exists, But he found credible evidence that it did exist, and his broad-scope, congressionally authorized entity was not being given the access that they were promised under the legislation. And so he made that initial complaint. Then there was backlash that came from that initial complaint. So he made another complaint to the inspector general, and that complaint was acknowledged by Marco Rubio, who said that both the IG found him credible and then Congress found his complaint credible. So those things lend a lot of credence to David Grush's testimony. That's why I'm leaning toward David Grush rather than necessarily the somewhat trivial critique, uh, fake skeptics that critique him.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, that's a great analysis. And Marco Rubio actually, in another interview, said that David Grush is not the only whistleblower and others in, quote, high positions in our government have come forward. So. This might be just the beginning of a long story and another log for the fire just for the people listening. According to Joshua Reed, who I don't know a lot about, just another counterculture figure with his own podcast, pretty much like everybody these days, he said that one of his contacts while in the Navy worked on the ASW team responsible for monitoring acoustic sensor devices placed all over the ocean floor. And they not only detected objects that would travel thousands of miles an hour underwater, but that they have detected various structures underwater that are active and they stay clear of. And that was pretty wild to me. But I guess I would ask you, you know, it seems like a lot of wild stuff is coming out, but yet it comes from sources that are experts in messaging, propaganda, narrative control, all this sort of stuff. So these little bits of information are fascinating, but it's a bit harder for me to discern the big picture of why put this stuff out there now and what the agenda behind this rollout, so to speak, might be. What do you think about that? How do you use your thinking tools to to parse this stuff? Because I don't know if taking it all at face value is the best approach.
2: Yeah, I think it's difficult to take uh, what I call inductive information at face value. There's a difference between deduction or deductive inference, and induction, or inductive inference. Deduction is where you have, say, three candidate explanations and you falsify two of them and are left with the final answer, the Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle method of resolving a complex question. Deduction is strong. Induction, on the other hand, is where you're connecting the dots, you're looking linearly, you're extrapolating, you're crossing the line of speculation. And you're saying the data suggests that this might be true. That's inductive. It's a much weaker form of inference. It's still science. I guess 80, 90% of science relies upon induction, just very, if you will, rigorous statistical induction, which helps improve things. But what I call linear induction nonetheless, that same thing occurs inside this discipline, if you will, this paranormal or pseudoscience discipline of UAP and the surrounding subjects, induction occurs there as well. The problem is that we're getting an effect called consilience, and that means we're getting so much information, which all points in the same direction, that the inductive inference is growing very strong. But that doesn't mean necessarily that our conclusion is correct. We have to be careful to not draw very specific conclusions, for instance, saying that we have aliens flying flying, stainless steel appliances through the sky that have come from outer space that's a very specific conclusion i I reject that we can't say that we have a placeholder that there's some type of non-human intelligence at play here in our atmosphere in our oceans and to david gresh's credit he refused to be prodded by the interviewers he refused to be prodded and goaded by the behavior panel into calling these things Aliens from outer space flying stainless steel appliances in the sky. That's not what's occurring. He stayed disciplined to the term non-human intelligences, pilots, and craft of exotic origin. And then he expounded on that with, quote, interdimensionality. That type of discipline lent him a lot of credibility, a lot of credence in his argument. You've got to use that type of parsimonious discipline when most of the evidence set is inductive. And that's what we have here. I will say that I grew up during the old SOSUS days where a lot of the intelligence briefs that I gave contained SOSUS information, especially what's called the GI-UK gap. That's between Greenland and the UK, Greenland, Iceland, and the UK. We were listening for you know Soviet ships and Soviet submarines transiting that familiar gap. That's been superseded by the IUSS system, which, of which the elements of that system are classified and we can't go into it. But suffice to say, it's of a sufficient precision and accuracy that it can pick up rather (laughs) paradigm-shattering observations in the ocean. And when we observe those types of blobs or large objects or fast-moving objects, that's deductive evidence. It adds a lot of credence to our argument, even if we're arguing for a placeholder, and that placeholder is non-human intelligences. That of course is the June two thousand twenty one ODNI report, argued soundly for a placeholder called non human intelligences with you know operating craft of exotic origin. That's the very terminology it used. There is validity to providing evidence which supports that placeholder.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And maybe there's not a whole lot more to say about that. But again, I think a lot more is gonna come out in the upcoming weeks and months, but let's get into the climate and how our earthly system works because this has been your bread and butter lately. You have this theory that you call the exothermic cyclic core theory of climate change, which basically says that the oceans have been warming way too quickly for it to be caused by man or even the sun. This warming seems to be coming from below and you highlight this chart that shows A massive amount of the sea surface temperature warming of our oceans since 1996 has happened in a mere three-week period just this year. Talk to us about this and how it could better be explained, because it does sound pretty radical, especially that last part.
2: Yeah, this is a theory that has not been posited, and I will say this, that actually makes me rather upset To make a claim as climate scientists, to make a claim to science and have not even looked, not even taken the first step of looking at an exothermic core theory is, it's incompetent. It's not just a shortfall. It's actually gross incompetence. We as the stakeholders who are at risk inside this arena, in other words, we have to pay the taxes, we have to sacrifice our jobs our livelihoods, in order to support this green science, if you will. We have the right as stakeholders at risk to put the onus back on science that they must provide adequate levels of rigor and discipline inside their offering, and they have not done it here. The fact that an exothermic core condition and that the heat could be coming from specific touch points underneath the surface of the earth in the deep or abyssal oceans and coming from the layer of mantle that's underneath the crust called the asthenosphere. The fact that we have not looked at that at all is gross incompetence, and the finger is pointing solidly at these scientists. They are at fault. They have undertaken a shortfall here. You know, I read Carl Sagan's Cosmic Connection in, in sometime around 1972 when it came out. It's 52 years later. The last 52 years, I've been a proponent of this idea, this notion of the greenhouse effect. And I think Carl Sagan called it in the cosmic connection. He was representing a lot of science at that time, called it, he used it, Venus as 900 degree you know, surface temperature and the runaway greenhouse effect there, the amount of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere that is greenhouse gas. He used Venus as an example. For those 52 years after I read that, I was a solid proponent of anthropogenic greenhouse gas caused warming. The problem is that I actually looked at the data. Being a skeptic, I go there and I look and I hold some things in a neutral disposition. This spring, when on March 7th, over the next three weeks, 43% of the sea surface temperature warming that has happened in the last 41 years occurred in those three weeks. There's no way that the specific heat of the atmosphere can deliver that much specific heat to the ocean in that short a time. We have a 35,001 problem there, and it is a problem of deductive falsification. It's a white crow moment. And the fact that climate science can't address this and can't handle a white crow observation bothers me immensely. You know, over my years, I've done over 180 engineering and strategy projects. I've done dozens of green engineered projects, applied for carbon credits, renewable gas credits, REM numbers, designed leads, dozens of LEED certified green buildings at gold and higher levels or lower levels, applied for alternative fuel credits, alternative fuel mixture credits, designed steam power plants, put in place the green accommodations, the carbon scrubbing for those plants. Hundreds of millions of dollars I've allocated in my projects, not that I've spent that money myself, these are for my clients, to support these initiatives. And then at the tail end of all that, I see a 43% jump in global sea surface temperatures in three weeks. That bothers me. That not only bothers me, it makes me angry that science has not taken into account what we're observing. Science has not taken into account this exothermic Earth core theory, that's a shortfall of incompetence, and it gets me highly upset.
1: Yeah, I could understand why. And let's talk about what might be causing that or how our earthly system might work. There are those folks who talk about cataclysms or cycles of catastrophe and pole shifts and flips and the Velikovsky type stuff. And I'm really interested in that realm of things because I also like the Gnostic perspective that Maybe this is some kind of container for us and that as we advance, every so often you gotta shake up the ant farm because <laughs> otherwise we're gonna start to crawl out. And so kind of <laughs> like the Tower of Babel story, like knock us back down, put us back in the sticks and stone age and let us rebuild. And maybe there are layers of civilization. I mean, there clearly are layers of civilization, but maybe it goes deeper even than uh what the history channel will talk about. But what are your thoughts on what could be causing this? And the prospect that our system is a lot more volatile than is typically discussed.
2: Well, you've had in the past, in fact, you had in the past month, Richard C. Oglin. Yeah. And Richard is a proponent of the scalar energy, and I don't want to pretend to be competent in his studies therein, but he's a proponent of scalar energies that are energies above and beyond just the straight electromagnetic frequency spectrum that's emanating from the sun, influencing the core. And I won't advertise his thoughts beyond that, But uh, but really when we look at it, it's possible that the sun is the ultimate cause of this. It's possible that we're crossing some zone in the galaxy which stimulates the core. But for all intents and purposes, we should avoid those discussions until we establish the core as at least the pathway, if not the genesis through which this heat and kinetic energy is originating. Because if we say it's the sun, Climate change already has 20 canned arguments, which all the acolytes have memorized, to address that it's not the sun. They're going to take that, put you in a bucket, and say, oh, yeah, you're you're a sun global warming, and here's my memorized statements against that. I don't want to have that defense rhetorically used against this argument. I want to stay focused on the core, because the core, whether it's stimulated from the outside or not, is the actual crux of this argument. It is the origin of this heat. And it's not that the core is hot. The core is the same temperature as it has been through recent geologic history or Earth Dynamo history. The issue is that the core is exothermic. That's a different condition. During my career, I was hired because of my classification access, because of my expertise, because of the way I approach problems. I was hired to take over as president of an exotic materials and metamaterials research corporation. And That was an adventure. (laughs) The uh, owners and investors were very famous people that everyone knows. And they brought me in to, if you will, rein in the scientists, get them focused, get them goal oriented and not income oriented (laughs) Mm -hmm. and solve a problem that existed in material physics for 50 years. Once we got all the lab testing dockets arranged in the right order, began the disciplines of scientific testing, we solved the problem in six weeks. Well, what I learned through that process, and I can't go into it, not because it's classified, but it's protected by non disclosure agreements that I've signed personally. So I can't go any further than that. But one thing I learned there is the state of exothermic release that happens when a material like iron is taken from its gamma phase, which is hexagonal close-back structure, that means iron that's under extremely high compression, like at the center of the earth, 6,000 gigajoules, or not gigajoules, gigapascals, excuse me. When that iron migrates its way to a lower pressure environment, it'll snap to what's called face-centered cubic lattice, Brevet. That's in the lingo. Pardon me if you using the lingo there. But when it snaps to that lower energy state, Brevet, it has to release kinetic energy. And that's a fancy physics and science word for saying, for the most part, electricity and heat. That's what's happening at the edge of the core. Each layer of the core is hexagonal close-packed iron. And when the core begins to lose its permeability, its magnetic permeability, and the North Pole wanders and weakens, and the Schumann resonance skyrockets, yeah. and the pole takes off out of North Canada and cuts across the Arctic Ocean into Russia, and drops at seventy five percent in its magnitude. That means the core is dissolute; it's losing its integrity. The crystal is beginning to dissolve, and it's beginning to cast off these flaming mountains of lava called ultra velocities, the ultra low velocity zone, and large low velocity province upwelled structures. These are structures of hexagonal close packed primarily iron, which are converting to face-centered cubic, and releasing kinetic energy. That's the principle of being exothermic. So heat is coming out of a core, which is essentially the same temperature as it's always been, yet we're releasing heat from this entire process that I just described. And that heat takes about two years to wide its way to the surface. Now, climate science has said, well, that doesn't make it to the surface because the Earth is a thermos bottle. If it is indeed exothermic inside the mantle, it doesn't get through the crust because the, I believe it's a a thermographic taper curve that they use, lithographic, I believe it's called, taper curve. By the time that heat, quote, gets to the surface, it's zero degrees differential. I beg to differ with that because they actually haven't studied it. 95% of the ocean floor is completely unknown. We've only mapped 15%. But even in that 15%, we don't know what pockets of high-temperature water is being ejected from the ocean bottom. 95% of this issue is an unknown. So to apply an assumption that the Earth is a thermos bottle and say we need look at it no longer, that's the essence of gross incompetence that comprises or that composes climate science right now. That's what I'm objecting to, that this material state in the core – is the most likely cause of this gigantic increase in heat that occurred in March and is continuing through now. And that that is the only explanation which has the power and elegance to explain everything that we see inside of climate science. And we haven't lifted a single finger to look at that.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a great summary, a little over my head, but
2: it does. <laughs> Sorry about that. It <laughs>
1: happens, it happens. But it lets us know that the politics and the policies and the restrictions and the proposed climate lockdowns, that all means nothing compared to what's really happening on the earth. And I think that's kind of one of the most important points for people listening who maybe get all worked up about this. It's like, hey, go back to the little motto from AA, give me the strength to control things in my sphere and the wisdom to ignore things I can't control. Or not worry about them so much. So, like, this is not something that we can control, it seems. And any policies and restrictions that come down the pipe from the uh, World Economic Forum to try to stave off this problem are pointless and should be ignored. And you mentioned that Schumann resonance thing. That was a wild one. So, just a couple of days ago, a week ago, we had this Schumann resonance monitoring system in Russia that went completely haywire, and funny enough, it was just a few days before that Russian coup or fake coup or whatever the hell that was from the Wagner group. But what are your thoughts on that? Just a faulty machine or an actual change in the Schumann Resonance?
2: I looked up how many monitoring stations we have for the Schumann Resonance, and and darned if it didn't just go fleeting out of my mind. (laughs) So I can't recall how many stations there are. The one in Russia appears to be the only one that made that odd observation. So there are two elements of unknown that we would apply there as skepticism, if you will. Number one, we didn't know how to interpret what we saw. And number two, they had just come online with a new system and they felt like it possibly was an artifact of how the signal was being processed. That's what I read. That secondhand, apparently coming from the engineers and techs at the station, So I don't know if it's true. But given that it's the only station that was reporting this, I would say that probably we should take it with a grain of salt, apply that and set it aside, you know, consider it. But I don't think we can draw inference from it. But suffice to say that really, it doesn't matter because the Schumann resonance uh, range banding has gone extraordinarily high. Historically, when the human resonance band amplification, that it means that the energy steps up into higher resonances, that has been associated historically with temperature increases globally. For some reason, 41 years ago, we said, that doesn't work anymore. From now on, it's only man. I don't buy that either. I think the principle still applies. It didn't stop applying in 1972. It applies now. When the Schumann resonance banding goes high, global temperatures increase. And that is indeed the case we're seeing here.
1: Hmm. So when your work was covered by another person operating under an Internet pseudonym called the Naked Emperor, great name. Yes. He pointed out that some monitoring system in Antarctica showed that big areas were on fire or something, maybe just another glitch. But have you looked at that at all?
2: I did. The retort to that, I don't have particular expertise there, so again, this is secondhand and I'm applying a thought to it, was that the temperature threshold was set too low. So what they saw may have been heat plumes from the volcanic structure. There are 138, I believe, volcanoes that are underneath the ice on one side of Antarctica. And they were capturing the heat plumes from those volcanoes and it interpreted that as fires. I think that's probably the the most parsimonious explanation there. So that's the way I view it. Not that I'm an expert there, though. That's my speculation.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, Antarctica is fascinating to me because we know so little about it. And the Antarctic Treaty of 1959 seems like one of the rare agreements the world's nations have upheld. It's an area that's one and a half times bigger than the U.S., but experiencing it is extremely limited. I would think there would be a lot of things worth exploring in an area that size other than just a barren, icy wasteland, you know?
2: I would think so. There are a lot of things about that that bother me. There are no humans. There's no non-governmental organization. There's no extra governmental entity. There is no government. There is no authority which has the right to negotiate a human's knowledge of their origins. It is our right as citizens of this planet to know and be aware of our origins or any of the information which acts as an inference inside that knowledge set. In other words, if there was an Adam and Eve, or if there wasn't, or if we evolved simply from you know, the DNA life of this earth, and that's it, it's our right to know those things. if If aliens planted us on the earth, and I'm not saying that's that's what happened. It's our right to know that, and all the information associated with that, it's our right to know that. No entity on this earth has the authority to constrain, embargo, or negotiate or mitigate that right. It is not their purview to exercise such judgment. In that regard, if there are exceptional observations in Antarctica, the individuals who are withholding that information are committing a human rights crime. Yeah. You think back to what was it? Buzz Aldrin said when he left Antarctica, it's evil, it's dark. That's something akin to that. I think he yeah, tweeted. Yeah. I, I can't remember the exact quote. I thought it was rather humorous. And of course, you know, if you realize some of the character, the nature of Buzz Aldrin, he he's a very uh, humorous and very intelligent individual. So I don't know exactly how to take his quote, but I do know I have heard from some insiders that there are extraordinary observations in Antarctica Those observations are not the property of the people managing or constructing treaties around that information. That's a human rights crime, and that's something that we have to deal with in the coming age of mankind.
1: Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So, you know, maybe you can't tell us exactly what these observations are, but do they relate to human origins, potentially?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, if you were going to hide an operations center from humanity... And not have to put together the complex structure that's required to live underneath the ocean or underneath the ground. Antarctica is a great place because humanity's not going to get to Antarctica for a long time. That would be the place to locate some type of operation. And the insiders that both inside intelligence and outside of intelligence whom I've heard firsthand describe exceptional structures. I don't know what they are or what created them, but I consider it possible. I don't know whether it's likely or not, but I consider it very possible that they're observing something credible. And I don't know what to do with that information other than to know it falsifies our nice little fairy tale of our origins that we've been handed since age three.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd be interested to know if these are some kind of operational structures or just the remnants of something, because you see images that look like pyramids that are covered in snow. You see structures that look man-made, similar to megalithic sites around the world. And my first thought as well, maybe the environment just changed radically and the same kind of megalithic sites around the world also exist in Antarctica, but maybe at a certain time it had a different climate. But if there's something operational or something still going on kept outside of the purview of humanity, that's quite interesting.
2: Yeah, and what is key here is the embargo. It's not just one embargo, but there are multiple embargoes of information that relate to mankind's origin. The complex saga of our appearance on this planet has been embargoed in its totality. And all of these embargoes bear the same trade craft of intelligence and black activity. That's what bothers me. When all the embargoes point in the same direction, that means it's purposeful. And that, I think I called it in my write-ups on the Ethical Skeptic, syndicate anti-wisdom. The word syndicates are there to control a market, and information is itself a market. So a syndicate that is there to control information will use embargo as its key tool. We see that embargo as it relates to every subject which is falsely called pseudoscience. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a such thing as pseudoscience. There certainly is. But we have overapplied, we've lathered on this term pseudoscience like an excessive amount of butter and syrup on pancakes. We've overdone it. And it is to our suffering, to our loss that we've misapplied this word pseudoscience. These topics, as it relates to cryptids, as it relates to UAP, as it relates to anomalous structures, as it relates to the age of these structures, say Malta or Carahan-Tepi or Gobekli-Tepi or other similar structures, we purposely misadvertise those, the genesis of those structures as being 4,000 years ago, all under convention, when indeed they predate the uh, Younger Dryas disaster or cataclysm. That's an important piece of information that we've broached recently, and it has opened up people's minds. The age of the Khufu and Khafran pyramids, the age of the Sphinx, are highly in question now. And the situation is, as broached, called plurality. That means more than one explanation. Khufu didn't build that pyramid. He didn't send his daughter into prostitution to pay for the pyramid because the person who made that statement had no idea the actual cost of building that structure during that time frame. There's no way they built that pyramid in 20 years. There's no way they built it by building a ramp because the ramp would have taken longer to build than the pyramid itself. And then you have to deconstruct the ramp after you built the pyramid and an internal ramp doesn't solve that, that problem. There are a number of problems with our narrative that are resolved by ideas which are embargoed. Those embargoes have to be released because, again, as I've said before, and this is part of ethical skepticism, those embargoes are human rights crimes. The people who pretend to these thrones do not have the right to undertake those mantles on behalf of mankind.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, cheers to all that. And (laughs) you said cryptid, so now I can bring it up. Ah. But I'm just curious (laughs) how you think such a thing could be explained. You have so many people. You know, you look at the cryptid shelf on a library and there's dozens and dozens of books full of dozens of accounts, each hundreds, thousands of people who see very strange things. Often the commonality is that they're out in the woods in a secluded area and these things can phase in and out. When they're observed, they tend to notice they're observed and then quickly dissipate. You got moth men, lizard men, dog men, all kinds of sea monsters and lake creatures and Bigfoot and just a wide, wide range of things. Some people connect it to fairy lore and the deep history there. There's gift exchanges, all kinds of little commonalities within the cryptid subculture. And of course, it's just generally dismissed as, well, we don't know what that is. And it's probably misidentification or nothing. What do you think, if, if you were going to try to explain how such a thing could be possible, these strange semi-humanoid things out in the woods that come and go, I don't know, maybe they're thought forms, what do you think of how we could make sense of that rather than just dismissing it?
2: Well, we identified what skepticism is earlier in our discussion. Scepter, which is the Latin root of skepticism, means to palm, to hold, to touch, or examine. What I've found is that the people that go there and look, I think I have a quote in there, I did not know, I went and looked, everything else was vanity. Those that go and look at the Bigfoot issue, and I'm not 100% convinced on this issue, however, I give credence to this, those who have the courage, the ethics, and the gumption to go and actually spend weeks in the woods and with the trained investigators and look at this issue, they come back convinced. That's the purpose of skepticism, not sitting in a university cubicle or in your parents' basement and applying doubt. That's not skepticism. That's methodical cynicism. So scientists will discover the Higgs boson particle and send an article to you sitting in your parents' basement as a cynic, and you'll immediately accept it. And then you see a film coming through from a UFO investigator or a Bigfoot investigator, and immediately you apply doubt. That's not skepticism. That's methodical cynicism. It is no way, shape, or form skepticism. The thing that you could go look at and verify yourself, that is the thing you should go look at and verify yourself. I can't run to CERN in Switzerland and you know verify that the Higgs boson has indeed been discovered. I think we're on the threshold or verge of that. I have to take scientists' word for that. I'm not competent to step into that realm and apply skepticism. So I'm a recipient of that information, and, and I'm appreciative of that science. But in terms of UAP and cryptids, I can go look. In fact, it's my duty to go look. It's my duty to withhold disposition and maintain a disciplined and objective mind before I go look. When I see people speaking who haven't done that, again, those people are doing what they should not do. They're applying methodical cynicism.
1: Hmm. Well, hey, I can at least meet you on that common ground. And so there are plenty of other things I wanted to ask you about from your previous articles, but here's just one good open-ended one. Here's a quote where you say, "I have been in every single continent on this earth except for Antarctica, and almost every one of its deserts and jungles, save for a few, I still have on my bucket list. There are rather astounding mysteries to be found. <laughs> well, I have no doubt." that there are mysteries out there, but can you fill us in on something that fits the definition of an astounding mystery, solved or unsolved, that might have come up in your globetrotting?
2: Well, let me think. Probably my best one was I led a strategy for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, worked for the ministries of trade and health in Saudi Arabia, and I can't go into any further than that because of non-disclosure agreements. But during that time, I spent years there during that time, I was able to fly over and transit through. It required me to travel extensively through Saudi Arabia. I both flew over and traveled in vehicles through all four quarters of Saudi Arabia. There was an area called the empty quarter, and we were looking at a particular uh, issue that was that existed in the empty quarter. What I noticed there was this peculiar pattern, which you know you can see in the American West, Lake Mead, for instance, of a receding shoreline. I'm very familiar with that type of, if you will, shoreline formation. I don't know what the technical term would be. But what I saw retreating through the Saudi desert and the empty quarter back to the Persian Gulf was a receding shoreline. In other words, the Persian Gulf at one time was much more extensive geographically than it is now. In fact, if you lay that progression of shoreline back out and then extrapolate back to where the Persian Gulf used to be, the Persian Gulf at one time stretched all the way up into the Ararat Mountains across the Levant and across Egypt and into North Africa. In other words, at one time it was a flood and it's clear if you can even look at it on Google Earth, you can see the receding shoreline, you can see the dissolved iron and pyrite in the sands, the red tinted sands, it's clear there was a flood in the Middle East. It was not a global flood. It didn't rise to 150 feet over Mount Everest, as the Bible implies. It went up to a certain height and then receded back down over maybe 10,000 years back to what is the present day Persian Gulf. But it's absolutely clear there. Why have we not presented that information? Why is that information not available to humankind It absolutely is key to our history, our origins as we come through the Levant, at least our lore as us coming through the Levant, which is Israel, Jordan, Syria, the fertile crescent there inside the Middle East. Why have we known this information? In fact, if you look at the Khafran Pyramid, it's distinct from the Khufu Pyramid. The Khufu Pyramid is taller, but it is not higher. It's set on a lower plateau. The Khafrean Pyramid is just slightly less tall than the Khufu Pyramid, but it sits on a higher section of Plateau, so its peak reaches a higher altitude than does the Khufu Pyramid. That's the pyramid with that, quote, cap of Tura limestone on top of it that's undisturbed. It looks really cool when you look at that mm-hmm. pyramid. If you look just below that cap, what you see there is called a bric-a-brac erosion pattern. There's a high erosion point and a low erosion point. It's a band. And that band has horizontal or horizon discipline to it. I've been in the Navy and I've sailed for 40 years. I know what a bric-a-brac erosion looks like. And that pyramid has bric-a-brac erosion on it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. That pyramid was underwater. It was under ocean water. And that ocean water is what dissolved and washed away that Tura limestone casing. It didn't dissolve the harder limestones, which are, you know, the two and a half ton blocks, which are probably a Mohs six or seven in hardness. The ocean water didn't affect those stones that were underneath, but they washed away the Tura surfacing stone. And that's why that cap remains. The flood got up to that band and then stayed at that level for some time. That's probably the quintessential example of a hidden secret that nobody acknowledges. And the reason we don't acknowledge it is not because we're dumb, it's because we've embargoed this pathway of information. And when we compare this embargo with all the other embargoes, they begin to take on a cohesiveness, a coherence, a focus. And that focus is that there's something that's being hidden at our background. And that's what I object to. I want to know what that thing is, even if it's despair inducing, even if it's disappointing, even if it's scary. It's still our right to know these things, and there's no entity on this earth that has the right to embargo it.
1: Yeah, I'm right there with you. And you mentioned in that little blurb I read about going through most of the earth's jungles. Have you ever seen something in the jungle that was surprising? You know, I hear these claims about stumbling across man-made structures that no one has any context for that have kind of been reclaimed by the jungle, but you can still see Aspects of it, lost cities in uh, South America, that kind of thing. Have you ever stumbled across something in the jungle where you're like, I wonder what that was at one time?
2: No, nothing in terms of cryptids or anything that I've seen personally in terms of ancient structures in a jungle setting, if you will. I did have two instances where we were visiting tribal elders to promote a certain program in an African nation. I work out every day. I run and I lift, or if I, you know, out in that type of circumstance, do heavy calisthenics. The tribal elder said, "Please do not run. <laughs> do not run through the jungle." Huh. <laughs> and I said, "It'll just be a short run." And they said, "We are warning you. Do not run through the jungle. We just don't." <laughs> <laughs> and so I took their advice and and avoided that. Another time, I was on an expedition with guides. We were in a situation where the foliage, the flora was so dense, you could barely step through it sideways. And we were staying at a a makeshift shelter and I wanted to go exploring through the foliage and the local guide through broken English said, please do not, do not go into the forest. And I said, why? And he said, the large animals. And I said, how are large animals going to be a threat? They can't even get through the trees. I can barely get through the trees. Mm. So how is something larger than me going to be able to pursue me through that dense of vegetation? And again, his wisdom was, don't, don't do it. So, you know, that doesn't mean anything necessarily. But those who are wise as guides, who have been there and grown up there their entire lives, they've seen anomalous things. And I take their advisement on it. Well,
1: yeah, I would as well. And this is something that's pretty mysterious and interesting. You have a post you wrote called Amongst the Standing Stones. And you say that years ago, you embarked on a journey to Scotland with a specialized tour company that delved into your family's rich and ancient Scottish lore. One small intriguing aspect was that the tour agency shared the same surname as you, which gave you hope for an extraordinary and personalized experience. You say, little did I know that this tour would lead me to a profound and unsettling encounter, an event which perplexes me to this very day. Talk to us about what happened at this 4,000 year old Standing Stone Circle near Aberdeenshire.
2: Yeah, it was rather odd. I didn't expect this. And we had visited, when I went on this tour to Scotland, I had contacted the owner of the touring company. And he said, oh, yeah, you're the same last name as me. I've got extensive numbers of things I want you to look at that pertain to just that family history. I have two PhDs, and I believe it, one was anthropology and one was uh, sociology with a particular focus on the Highland and Hebrides cultures, the Scottish, ancient Scottish cultures. So they gave us tours with a very small group. When we drove, we'd gone through probably 15 different Pictish and ancient structures We did some castle tours, but I wanted to focus on really the ancient lore of Scotland or the ancient artifacts of Scotland, in particular, the stone circles. There are 3,000 stone circles in the British Isles, and 80% of those circles, and I got this information by looking at the Stone Circle Encyclopedia years ago, so pardon me if my memory is wrong, but I think this is correct. 80% of the circles are moon circles. 20% 20% of them are like Stonehenge, which are solar circles. But this circle that we drove to was one of several that we visited. But when we drove to this circle, it's called Nine Stains, which means, I believe, nine stones, fairly simple. As we're driving there, I began to feel this tug on me, and I'm not one that's prone to, if you will, panic attacks or any kind of physical you know, stress, but given my career. As we drove to this circle, I started feeling a pull in a certain direction, and as we pulled on the side of the road, there were no markers. There wasn't like a historical marker and saying, hey, the stone circle's this way. There was not actually any place to park, for all intents and purposes. We just pulled off the side of the road because the tour guide knew where this stone circle was. When I got out of the back seat of the car, I opened the door up and tried to stand up. I had to run sideways to keep from falling over because this pull. Was pulling me up into the pine forest, uphill into the pine forest. So I asked the tour guide, I said, Hey, is the stone circle right up there? And he said, Yeah, it is. How did you know? And I said, I can feel it. I've never felt this before. I've never heard of such a thing before. And I'm fine physically. You know, there was, we had no pub crawl the night before. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any kind of risky breakfast (laughs) (laughs) or anything like that. I didn't have that type of stomach upset. But as we walked to the stone circle, it became just very uncomfortable, and I didn't, I wasn't going to be able to remain in that area until I realized that when I walked to the very center of the stone circle, the effect stopped, like the eye of a hurricane. And so, I tried five, six, seven times, I guess, to walk out of the stone circle so I could look at the other stones, the headstones that demarc. The highest point of the lunar reach in the sky, the season marking, the solstice marking stones, all those things I wanted to look at, but I couldn't. I had to stand in the center and my camera to the other participants in the tour and have them take pictures for me. And every time I tried to leave the circle, I would get that incredible pull back to the center and the nausea and the anxiety and all these things. And then as we walked away, it's pulling me back toward the circle as we walked away. And then as we drove away, that whole force began to subside and about a mile away from the stone circle, it faded away. And none of the other participants had that. I wrote the author of the stone circle encyclopedia and said, Hey, here is this odd circumstance I had at nine stains. Have you heard anybody talk about this? And he said, Oh yeah. He said, you're a shaman Hmm. about one to 3% of the people who visit circles get some type of effect that they talk about and it's one to 3% because you really don't know it's, you know, subject to subjective interpretations, personal interpretations. He said, yours was rather visceral. I have not heard it be that severe, but yes, let's say it's a percent or half a percent of people are able to feel these circles for whatever reason. And so he didn't offer up anything beyond that. And I still consider it a mystery. I don't know what to interpret from it, but it was a strange event. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that is really interesting. I've talked to a lot of guests trying to unpack the mystery behind the Standing Stone Circles. Some think they were erected as portal places for shamans to communicate with multidimensional intelligence. Some focus more on the energetic anomalies and how they seem to draw up energy from the earth. Maybe they're on a network of ley lines. Clearly there's an effect, but what could cause an effect on just one member of a group like that and not others.
2: You know, I don't know. The only clue I got was when I had my Y-DNA analyzed the project that I registered inside of, which has the DNA, it's 750,000 data points uh, at the time that we did this analysis, which represented probably 90% of the genome of Celtic and Northern Europeans. So it was a fairly extensive representation of the Y-DNA haplogroups that are comprised by humanity, that human group. So they had a fairly complete inventory. And the director of the program wrote me and said, you've got an ancient DNA, but you're not connected to anybody in our database. They said, I have run into this. How come you have such an ancient DNA, yet you're not related to anybody in our database? So he asked permission to go ahead and pay for my DNA, my Y-DNA analysis, to take it further into its development. I think I had run a Y-36, and he wanted to take it to a Y-512 or something like that. I can't remember. When the results came in, it ended up being a very ancient Y-DNA with really no relatives globally. And that, I suspect, and that again, that's a suspicion, not an epistemology, that that is somehow connected with this effect, but I don't know that in truth.
1: Hmm. Damn, yeah, it reminds me of a a story I've heard and just researching high strangeness where a person had an encounter with a leprechaun and the leprechaun is like, oh, you can see me. Well, you must be Scottish. There's just no other way because otherwise I can just go all through here and nobody can see me. And the person was like, what the hell? And of course, they obviously were left with more questions than answers, but there seems to be some genetic component to various things like that. Maybe it's location-based. I don't really know. But the elite certainly seem very concerned with DNA and genetics and their family trees and preserving their genetics. And they probably know more about those connections than we ever will.
2: They they probably do. And, and it's probably embargoed, but that's... Uh... That's, again, speculation. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to put embargo somewhere in the title of this thing because it just keeps coming up. But just to try to fit in one good final question, let's talk about what we can do. A lot of us see this big, epic problem with Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab, and we realize that we can't really do much about it at that scale. I've heard you say similar things in that we are obsessing over problems that are 200 feet away, forgetting to solve problems that are two feet away. Well, how do we recalibrate that focus and be effective in making a better world despite the machinations of the predator class?
2: Well, he, the bottom line is that I don't have the skill as much as I've done in terms of strategy, as four decades have really been handed some of the, the most daunting problems that are at least tactically or strategically available to mankind. As much of that work as I've done, I'm still not qualified to solve this problem, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> But I will say that it pertains to flows of value and accountability, and margin is the reward that comes from being accountable. By providing value, by standing accountable as an entity inside an economic value chain, you're rewarded. So there are mechanisms that allow us to lens what is an ethical activity, what is a population beneficial activity. And if we're going to continue to focus on profit and cash, cash is king, as we've heard, to consolidating into mega corporations, to consolidating our power to be as high and as as richly empowered by legislation as is humanly possible, we're going to continue to make this mistake because we're not focusing on value and accountability. And I don't know how that applies in every arena, but I do know that that argument resides at the heart of this issue. So the more we build archons, the more we promote this archonic agency into the position of king, monotheistic god, and royalty, whether we acknowledge gods or not, we're still doing it. The more suffering is going to result, the more louche is going to be available for this dark hierarchy to consume, and the more we will continue to lose as a species. That state cannot continue forever. And the dark hierarchies know this. And they're in a panic as a result of it.
1: Mm. Well, that is a hopeful message. And I certainly like to think I'm engaged in a venture for the greater good, but the margin ain't bad either. And <laughs> damn, man, well, we covered a lot of ground and I loved it, but it is about that time. Give the people your links and all that just one more time before we call it in.
2: Yes, it's just www, the ethical Skeptic. One word, obviously, .com. That's the uh, main website. I've got a substack under the same name as well. And then, of course, a Twitter presence under that same name as well.
1: Right on. Yeah, not really doing it for much promotional benefit at all, given the career you've had. But thanks a lot for doing it. It was a real pleasure. And take care out there.
2: All right, Greg, thank you. Enjoyed it. You were well prepared. I do appreciate it.
1: (laughs) I try. Thanks. How about it, my damies? Fun one. Some practical stuff and some unique insights and quite random stuff, too. That's the way I like it. When I asked him to come on, I really thought we'd do a dry, deep dive into the data on both climate and Vax damage. But when I dug into his blog a bit further, I sort of scrapped that idea and latched on to the more unique or unexpected things that he's commented on. A person with this much travel and life experience, sometimes you just got to be a bit more open ended. So I would say it was a lot of fun to just listen to insights and little anecdotes from those experiences. And I hope you agree. I didn't want to get too behind again. So I started recording shows like crazy. I thought the ethical skeptic was a good guy to bring up the David Grush material with. Pretty old news now, but we got to fold it into the THC record somewhat. I think L.A. Marzulli was the first guest I had on deck right when it came out, but I wanted to touch on it again from a less religious perspective with someone who actually had some of that apparently not so important access. But like I said, the man earned his stripes during COVID, which I think we know what we need to know about. I don't see a need to rehash it all, but I like a guy who I'm on the same page with on that. At least it establishes a good base. And now his climate analysis is even more interesting because we talk about cataclysms and plasma events and natural resets all the time. And now we have somebody saying that the oceans are warming at a rapid rate, a rate that is in no way related to industrialization or CO2 because it's happened in the blink of an eye this year. So logically, something is happening within. The inner sun is getting hotter, perhaps. (laughs) But I find it interesting to think about. I don't know that I can do much acting on it, but opinions range from Mark Morano saying, ah, it's all fine. Nothing we do has much of an effect at a planetary scale. This is all hype and the system is stable. And then we have other guests who say catastrophes happen all the time. Rapid change happens all the time. The stuff about man-made climate change and all the control policies they want to put in place are hype and unjustified. Yes, but that doesn't mean our system isn't volatile or prone to making big sudden changes that we have yet to be able to understand or explain properly. That's probably the camp I fall into. But on the heels of Paul Shatskin and all the insights from Morgan about the Caroline Group, I thought the ethical skeptics background also might let us peek behind the curtain a bit. There will be critics and purists who think that anyone who works with the capstone cabal is terrible and should never be talked to. But people are complex. Many folks think in situations like that that the machine is bigger than any one person. And if they don't take a particular job, someone else will. That's probably true. I mean, I have my own thoughts about all that, but I try to stay pretty neutral in an interview because I want a person to open up and give us some insights we won't get if we're just wagging our finger at them regarding things they did in a career that we don't like. And there are many interesting things said within the carefully chosen words of the ethical skeptic. And I would like to talk to more people who have had access within certain circles rather than just researchers writing about them from the outside. But it's hard to do. You kind of have to just wait until they come to you. Although when Richard Dolan hooked us up to talk plasma with Kosh, that was a great rare situation. But you guys know I've never been satisfied just rehashing the same old points I've been listening to alternative research long enough to know when that's being done. Granted, I can't control what a guest says, but I try to pick people that might at least say something you haven't heard. And I'm flying that George Bush mission accomplished banner today, especially if you heard the second hour in the plus show for plus members. We talked about King Solomon's lost mind of offer, rarity versus scarcity and market manipulation. Value chain nodal analysis, strategies to cut out the parasite class from siphoning margin in commerce, how to detect a grypher and the louche addicted dark hierarchy, the ethical skeptic's thoughts on the morality of working with the capstone cabal, his work on a curious astrological confluence, Antiochus I, the Nemrut Dag temple, and the anomalous star which of course got into the mystery of the crescent and star symbology and why the World Economic Forum encodes it. Wild stuff. I particularly liked what he had to say about the evil men he's worked for, the dark hierarchy and louche, but also that material about the crescent star. If you liked that, go read that post, A Curious Astrological Confluence, because it has all the details and images and just a really fascinating rabbit hole. But I thank him for his time and willingness to talk. In side News, I'm trying to give away that $500 a show, but I contacted two different people who have not written me back. One is a Plus member, and one is a person who did put their email on the list when I asked. So I would think they'd be kind of paying attention. I know that I said that you have 24 hours to respond, but I feel bad. So I'm going to hope that they hear this message and get back to me soon but if I can't hear back soon, I've got to move on. I thought this might be a problem with trying to give away $500 every episode, but still I try. I didn't want to get too far behind again, so the show must go on. As for the gatherings that THC listeners have set up in the near future using the event's website, Hiresidemeetups.com, here's what we got. July 15th, Brooklyn, New York. July 22nd, Warren, Indiana. Also, July 22nd, Los Angeles, California. July 23rd, there's a meetup in London. And July 28th, there is a Zoom meetup for people in Southwest Ohio. They're looking for a place to meet up, and they just want to come together with other listeners in the area and decide where that place should be. But that would round out the month. Not so bad. Plenty of places to meet other THC listeners all over this island earth. Find the others over a mutual love of the strange counterculture topics we talk about. But that said, I am calling it in. It is my wife and I's anniversary, so I am needed elsewhere. But I do love you guys, and I appreciate you listening. And give Ethical Skeptic a shout-out if you enjoyed his thoughts and stories as well. I've done my part. Your move, embargo implementers, propaganda presenters, and data-denying false skeptics. Your move fucking move
0: i won't take it no i refuse if it's all right i'll keep my refuge i've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind gotta transfer to the inner earth i built a box built a hole got a neat elevator going under and now you'll find me in the bunker
2: of your local civil defense organization. The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do?
0: Bunker, take it under. you find me in the bunker. Bunker, bunker, take it under. you find me in the bunker. Bunker, take it under. Bunker Bunker